Ahoy Mets fans. Welcome to a special installment of Amazing Avenue Audio. We have been doing something on Thursday evenings with an app called Locker Room. The best way I can describe Locker Room is it's like sports talk radio without the radio, where there's a host of a room, which in this case is me, and folks can come and join the room and chat about the topic. And so uh, this past Thursday evening, we asked the question, what was the biggest miss this offseason for the Mets? And we wound up getting into some stuff that has nothing to do with the Mets. We talked a lot about the World Baseball Classic, NPB and KPO Baseball. We talked about sort of the general state of catching in center field. It was a really fun discussion. And the app is free for iOS users. It is not yet on Android. But it is something that I think is a lot of fun. And we've had a great time with it so far. We're doing it every Thursday. Um, Might try a new time this week. So just follow the Amazing Avenue Twitter for information. Uh, We post an article about it before it goes up. And then we tweet the link when it's happening. So check it out. It's been a lot of fun so far. And I'd love to chat with more listeners and Mets fans in general. So enjoy the show. Check out the Locker Room app. And until next time, let's go Mets. This is a locker room production. Welcome everybody to uh, to tonight's locker room. Uh, my name is Brian Salvatore. I'm the deputy site manager and podcast dad over at Amazing Avenue, the SB Nation New York Mets site. We are here tonight talking about the biggest misses of the offseason. Uh, we're going to start this conversation by talking about the Mets. But if there's any fans of other teams in here and you want to talk about sort of what your team's uh, biggest miss this offseason was, there was a player or a position that you felt should have been, uh, you know, more covered, then we would love, love, love to hear that. So um, I guess I will start by just saying that, you know, the Mets had a number of high profile uh, free agents associated with them that did not happen for for whatever reason, you know. Uh, some of those reasons were, um, you know, outside of the Mets' control. For instance, there were a number of relief pitchers, uh, Liam Hendricks, Brad Hand, who had wanted to close. And so the Mets, uh, without already having Edwin Diaz under contract, did not want to guarantee anybody the closer spot, which I think, you know, is a is a logical move, especially if Diaz can be who he's been in 2018 and 2020, then none of those free agents would have even held a candle to him. So I understand not wanting to dump him for, you know, a new closer. And I would guess that those players felt that he get similar money elsewhere and get to close. And so I can't blame the Mets as much for that. The Mets also, you know, um, whiffed on the biggest uh, free agent starter, which is something I'm very glad about. I am on record on locker room and elsewhere talking about how I am very happy that Trevor Bauer is not a Met. But, you know, that is certainly a player that some people thought was going to wind up a Met this offseason. And then there were a couple of players on the offensive side, specifically center fielder George Springer, that folks had helped, hoped, rather, the Mets would bring in this offseason. But he wound up going to the Toronto Blue Jays instead for that elusive sixth year. And um, so, Thomas, you're up here, so I'm going to pick on you in a second here. If you could go back and let the Mets do one more move this offseason, what is the move that you would have wanted them to do? Um, I would have signed Springer if I were them. Mm-hmm. Um, I talked about this on the – I did the the Mets outfield preview for the Baseball Prospectus Mets pod uh, for all you kids out there last week. Mm-hmm. And basically the what I said there was kind of what I'll say here in shorter terms. But Conforto is going to be a free agent, and it's – I don't. I the way he's talking about the contract extension and who his agent is, there's no guarantee that he'll extend. I actually think it's very unlikely that he will. So Springer would have made you really, really, really good in 2021, and then moved to right field in 2022, or yes, and would have really um, softened the blow of Conforto leaving because I think he's a, a better player than him. Um, he's a little older, so he, the end of the contract might not be the same, but. If you make me choose between the two right now, I'd choose Springer over him. Um, so, yeah, that's really basically it. Um, I understand why they went McCanton over Rio Muto, even though I don't necessarily – I don't know if I agree with it or not yet. That's one I'm torn on. But Springer was a clear and obvious upgrade that I th- – Do you think that the the sixth year was just too far for the Mets to go? Or do you think that they could have gone that sixth year without too much trouble? Um. 
I would have gone that 60 without too much trouble, but the Mets, as run by Sandy Alderson, would not. Um, I think that's the reason why Sandy went so hard after Bauer, I think, is because it was two years minimum, pretty much, and three years max. Uh, Sandy pretty much, I, I think it's pretty clear at this point, he's afraid of years more than money, which worries me about a Lindor extension in the future, but that's obviously not what we're talking Like, I'm just, that's like one of sure. the things that is interesting from a Sandy point of view. Like, he very clearly does not want to give out that many years, and you have to now. So I don't know what necessarily, like, I would have gone six years for him easy, and even if that last year sucks, there's probably a DH by then, and you could fudge it for a year. But it's very obvious that the Mets don't want to do that as long as, long as Sandy is the Yeah, I, I wonder if part of the aversion to Springer for that deal is that you're paying him as a center fielder, but you're probably getting him as a right fielder. And while, you know, I, I think that Springer's offensive potential is certainly high enough to, to merit that kind of a salary, I think for a lot of people, if you're going to go out and sign him to play center field, that's going to, that softens the blow of the contract a little bit. Because as we all know, good center fielders, specifically good offensive center fielders, are almost impossible to come by. And so you're paying a premium for the position, but you're almost instantly going to lose that position. I think one, maybe two, in the best of circumstances, three years down the road. And I don't know if the Mets are going to want to play this game again with a free agent center fielder two, three years down the road. I don't think that there's necessarily a natural option in-house two, three years down the road. You know, I would like to hope and believe in Khalil Lee or believe in Pete Crow Armstrong, but both those guys might be three years away, and both those guys might not work out because that's what happens with prospects. So I wonder how much of the buyer's remorse, uh, you know, the sort of potential buyer's remorse for Springer had to do with the move off of center field. And honestly, with Springer, like, as much as I would have signed him, he has doubled the innings in right field in his career than center. Like, people kind of acted, and me included, were just like, yeah, he's a center fielder. But, I mean, he's his career high in center field of innings is only 643, and that was three years ago. It's not like, it's not like he plays center field every day all the time in Houston for the last few years anyway. Right. So I bet Sandy saw that, and I bet Sandy saw that they're going to have to switch him to right. You know what I mean? So, yeah. like... I think there's a there's enough red flags that I understand, but also there's no like clearly might not be good because he might not be able to hit swing changes regardless. It doesn't look like it's stuck yet in spring. Like the swing looks the same that it was when it was a bad one. Mm-hmm. Um, and Pete Cromstrong's a kid and has not played a professional game yet because right. he got drafted during COVID. So we have no idea what he is. So like the Mets are going to need to do something in the outfield next year, regardless, even if they resign Conforto. Right. So, it yeah. might just be like McNeil and Dom in the corners and Nimmo in center with oh, Cano playing with Cano <laughs> playing second. Like, like that's like what might the what might the team construction be if they can't get anyone? So, well, you know, it, the, I I understand that fear, but what I'll say is that I believe this is correct. So, leaving a Lindor extension or a leaving any extension off the table right now, the Mets have less than a hundred million dollars in uh, allocated payroll for 2022 right now on the books. And so there's going to be a lot of room to play with. Now, granted, if you, you know, throw 25 or $30 million per year at one or two players, if you extend Syndergaard or Stroman or both, if you wipe out DeGrom's opt-out and restructure his deal, that money goes away pretty quickly. But it's not like they have no money to play with. I also think that, Next year's outfield class is shit. Um, I don't think that. I know that. And so I wonder if the Mets will be looking to upgrade uh, via the trade during the season for an outfielder. The problem is, I mean, I don't know if I could name five starting center fielders who I would feel as confident as I would in Springer, even with Springer's defensive liabilities. I still feel like I'd feel more comfortable with that guy in center field than all but maybe five or six of the center fielders playing baseball today. It's just such it's, – it's, right now is such a great time for shortstops. It's a great time 
for uh, third baseman. It's really not a great time for center fielders or catchers, which are two positions that, you know, the Mets needed to address going into this offseason. And while I agree with you, Thomas, I think I probably would have gone with Real Muto, all things considered. Um, I think McCann will probably wind up being a fine player for the Mets. Hopefully a good one. I, I've liked the little bit I've seen of him this spring uh, in terms of his defensive abilities. I, I, we were commenting in our Amazing Avenue Slack a couple days ago about how weird it is to see a catcher block pitches and how we hadn't seen that in a while. Um, so, you know, I, 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 I am worried about center field, though I don't know that Springer was necessarily the – I don't know if Springer was necessarily the answer that I would have wanted him to be if they had gone and signed him. He feels a little bit like a square peg in a round hole right now. But, you know, that's, that's just me. Um, anybody in the room have a different position or player – that they would have liked to see the Mets. Or, like I said, if there's non-Mets fans in here. Oh, Christian's here. Hey, Christian, what's up, man? Hey, how's it going, Brian? Good, how are you? Uh, Doing well. So, I am not going to put, like, a Mets-specific tinge on this take, but I think the league seriously whiffed on retaining Tanaka and trying to get Sugano in the league. Both, I think, have ace-quality stuff. And the Mets signing players like Lucchese and Yamamoto like certainly bolsters their starting rotation. But someone like a, like a Sugano or a Tanaka like, all of a sudden makes that into one of the best rotations in the league. And to see two quality starters like that decide that Major League Baseball isn't right for them right now, that... That felt like a big whiff for the league entirely. I think that's an amazing point. Do you have any insight or any gut feeling as to why they didn't feel Major League Baseball is right for them right now? Uh, that's a that's a great question. I, I feel the pandemic might have a lot to do with this. Both of them might feel more comfortable staying at home in a year that may still be up in the air. Um, but honestly, I, I don't think that any offers on the table bowled either of them over. Tanaka has been on the record saying that he only wants to pitch for the Yankees and Sugano probably was looking for some type of deal that he could get in Tokyo pretty easily. So I, I don't know. There's, there's, there's a lot of like contributing factors here, but the Giants did post Sugano and there was interest for him to come to the United States, but I can't remember the last time someone of his prowess being posted and deciding to stay in Japan. Yeah, I wonder, you know, the, the pandemic has affected things in such weird ways. You know, one of the things we were talking about as Mets fans early in the offseason was that Steve Cohen had an advantage as the Mets owner, as he would be the only owner who didn't lose money during the 2020 season, right? And so I wonder if the teams were just more gun-shy to give a, a contract to a player who they did not get to scout the same way they would scout a player playing in the U.S. It, you know, the ball is different. The, the ballparks are different. So I wonder if they just felt like this wasn't the year to take on the financial risk, even though I think, I mean, we don't have exact numbers, but they probably, any team could have probably offered what he get, what he got in Japan without too much trouble. Like he didn't, yeah. he didn't get bowled over by a contract. Yeah, and, and I don't know the the specifics on any contracts that were offered stateside, but I can agree with that sort of hesitancy to take on someone who is above his 30s and someone who has dealt with arm problems before. People are also very skeptical about workloads in Japan, and so bringing mm -hmm. in a veteran arm might be a bit of a risk. Um, but one could argue that Tanaka is the greatest non-Hideo Nomo pitcher to play in the United States, and for him not to be retained by anyone in the United States, regardless of whether he wanted to play for the Yankees or not, is a bit strange to me. But even the Yankees not re-signing him seems crazy to me. The Yankees don't have a uh, a top-to-bottom secure rotation right now. Yeah, I, I, I wonder if there's legit concern about his arm. I, I know that he's been pitching with a partially torn UCL for years now. Um, yes. But it's... it's um, it's a bit strange that the Yankees weren't willing to throw the bag at uh, at Tanaka, but were willing to take a risk on someone like Corey Kluber. Right, and and they could have done both with 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 relative oh, yeah. ease. It wasn't like it wasn't like they were they were that close to the uh, the luxury tax threshold that they couldn't rearrange a couple of things to get both of those guys there. And that brings up a really interesting question: is 
is, is the how can I put this? Do we think that Major League Baseball is less interested in bringing in Japanese players right now? Because that seems crazy to me. That, that it seems like Major League Baseball should be doing everything it can to elicit as big of an international fan base as it can. And I mean, I'm old enough to remember. Hideo, I actually saw Hideo Nomo's first spring training game in Florida. I was on vacation there with my family. And for a spring training game, it was sold out. There were there was press everywhere. You know, and then when Ichiro came over or Matsui came over, you know, these these were huge, huge boons for American baseball and baseball as an international product. So Christian, do you think that that, that there is a waning interest in from MLB about foreign about uh, Japanese or just generally Asian players, or do you think that just this is a, an isolated year because of the pandemic and the sort of weird ripples that you know fanned out from there? Yeah, I think it's a couple of things. I think that both NPB and KBO are able to offer more money than they've ever have been in the past, and so it's more attractive for players to stay home essentially. But I also think that there's been such a large whiff rate on especially position players coming in from KBO and NPB that owners are probably really, really gun-shy. And yeah, sometimes you can strike gold and get an Ichiro or Sinshuchu, but more likely than not, you're getting someone who is not ready for the bigs. I wonder if there's any... I mean, it's a double-edged sword, right? Major League Baseball wants to bring in the most successful... Korean and Japanese players, but the Korean and Japanese leagues have no interest in losing their biggest players to the major leagues. So there's not even like, what I was going to initially say is, do you think that there's a way that MLB could work with the KBO or the, uh, or the Japanese league whose uh, abbreviation is escaping my brain right now because I'm on the spot. Uh, NPB, correct? <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. NPB. Um, yeah, just couldn't couldn't get out of my brain there for a second. But you know, there, there's really no incentive for them to work together on bring on sharing players. So the whiff rate is no. going to be there. Yeah, there's it's it's weird. Major League Baseball is perfectly fine with making sure that their rosters are filled with people from all over the world. But KBO and NPB are very concerned about making sure that their rosters stay either very Korean or very Japanese, which is why they only allocate four roster spots to foreigners for each team. And so Mm -hmm. they do whatever they can to retain their best talent possible. And so regardless of how much interest Major League Baseball shows in trying to recruit players from other countries, it's also up to Korea and Japan whether they want to send their best and brightest or not. And yeah, sometimes they can send their best like Michiro and have the game grow internationally that way. But sometimes they might have someone like Inotani, who was a god in Japan and is kind of not making the same waves in the United States. Right. And that's a real problem for them because they need to retain their talent, their business too. Yeah, I wonder if there's, uh, you know, I, I know every year, at least this was a tradition. I think it still happens, but honestly, I haven't been aware of it. I know for a couple of years, or for many years, rather, there was a, there was an MLB tour of, of Japan after the World Series. I remember, and I think it was 2005, David Wright was on the team. That's the first time I, I was paying attention to results for that um, because Wright was on the squad. But And I remember it being... It being one of those things that initially it was a very big deal to be asked to be on that tour, and then eventually people realized that the injury risk and the lack of a premium payday was probably not a great thing for that. But I wonder if there are other ways for MLB to to get more attractive to players overseas to come play for them. Not that MLB needs to be. I mean, I, I think that the best of all situations is if there's a strong, you know, I mean, I, I think about soccer, right? There are plenty of people who live in the states who do not watch Major League Soccer, but watch foreign soccer. And I think that there should be a market like that for Korean and Japanese baseball. I see no reason for there not to be, except that MLB is a monopoly and probably doesn't want that. Yeah, that's, that is troublesome, especially since they all play around the same time. And there aren't going to be that many people who are going to like wake up and eat KBO for breakfast and then MLB for dinner. Like that's, that's a lot of baseball to right. take in through the day. Right. Um, 
it's, I mean, even during that, the pandemic, people weren't doing that. No, no. And I apologies if I've hijacked this conversation entirely, but it, no. it is a pretty fascinating no. subject for me. And uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know how much MLB can really do about that. It's going to take a significant partnership. And maybe some of that can come with international events like the Olympics or the World Baseball Classic, which MLB runs. And it's it, it's something that's going to take both sides. Like the MLB can show as much interest as they want to, but unless Korea and Japan show interest as well, nothing will really change. Now, Christian, you're in Southern California, correct? Correct. Now, have you ever gone to any of the World Baseball Classic games? Yes, I went to the uh, semifinal and finals in 2009 and saw Korea and Japan play. That was the greatest live game I've ever seen. And I also went wow, to okay. semifinals and the final in 2017. And I also think I saw a couple of games in San Diego in the regionals that year as well. Um, so, yes, I, I have been to a handful of games. Okay, how did how did the uh, how did the how did the crowd react during those games? Was the crowd into it? Because I I went to one of the preliminary games in Florida. Uh, you know, I think it was the first or second World Baseball Classic, and like there were a lot of factors going against it. It was two teams. I, I think it was, gosh, I can't even remember now. But it was it was not very well attended. It was a kind of crappy day. It was two teams that didn't have a lot of star power on it. And the crowd was just really not into it. Did, did you have a different experience than that? Entirely. And I think a lot of it is because the demographics in Los Angeles are a little bit different. And the World Baseball Classic really lucked out in having a Japan-Korea final. Um, Los Angeles has the largest Korean population outside of Seoul, I believe. And so a stadium that seats 56,000 people had 50,000 Korean Americans and about you know, 5,000 Japanese Americans. And it was loud. There was nothing but thundersticks for the entire time. The Japanese crowd also brought in a brass band that they sat in the right field pavilions. And that was playing only when the Japanese team was batting. They were very courteous when Korea was batting. But it was, it was the most soccer-like atmosphere that I've ever been in a baseball game before. Uh, in 2017, it was a little bit different. The Americans made the, the final against Puerto Rico. And Puerto Rican fans knew that they didn't have much of a chance of winning, but they came out and partied anyway. And this was the, this was the time when Major League Baseball allowed, quote-unquote, musical instruments to come in. And a lot of people brought musical instruments, but most people brought pots and pans and spoons. And there were makeshift parties and dances in the concourse even when Puerto Rico was down like eight runs in the final innings. It, it was really fun both times, despite it being massively different crowds. That sounds really cool, because what I was going to say is, you know, I don't know if the, uh, the World Baseball Classic has quite lived up to its potential yet, uh, at least stateside. I, I know it means a lot to the other countries, and I don't think that uh, U.S. fans really care that much, and that's, that's just because U.S. fans are... Uh, I, I think that the, the typical U.S. fan is far more interested in their team than their sport. And so the, the fandom didn't carry over in the same way that I think for a lot of other teams it did. Um, and that's, that's I, I think I, I think that's true for Team USA, like that quote-unquote American team. But I would say a decent plurality of fans in the United States are not supporting Team USA. I went to a semifinal game in 2017, sorry, 20, sorry, 2009. It was Venezuela versus South Korea. And there were at least 30,000 Venezuelan fans in Dodger Stadium at that time. And I had no idea we had a Venezuelan community on the West Coast. And, and yeah, Major League Baseball, they want those American audiences watching on TV because that's where they get their money. But this matters enough for people to travel. And like that sort of thing can still carry i think that thing can sell whether it's on mlp network again in 2022 or 23 or whenever they're having it is a different discussion but i i think there's a lot of potential in infiltrating international communities within the country instead of just trying to get your your average team usa fam i think that makes a lot of sense and we have michael now here to chat hi mike hey what's up what did you want to add to the wbc conversation here 
So I, I just wanted to say, because I am an American who actually does really get into the WBC. Um, so just to kind of offer my own two cents about it, because I don't know, I am someone who like can't really get into the Olympics at all. Cause like, I just don't really care about any of the sports that are involved there. And so I feel like the WBC actually does offer me that one kind of opportunity where I can kind of, you know, watch it from like the country perspective as opposed to just my team perspective. Um, I think a lot of people probably get that experience from the Olympics and I don't really get that. So sure. I don't know. I, to me, like it's it's a cool thing, and I was actually really bummed when the WBC got canceled last year. So, um, plus, I was, I was also hoping that we would get to see like you know uh, Pete and you know McNeil like on the team. Which like, how sure. awesome would it be to like you know that like Pete would get like super into it, and he would <laughs> yes. just like he would just like do a huge bat flip if he hit a you know big big dong in the games. Like that would be that would be so cool. Like I definitely am hoping that at some point we will be able to see that. Here's my question to you. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure what your uh, like ancestral heritage is, but did you care more about Team USA or like? I have a friend who is uh, whose dad is was born in Israel, so he was all in on Team Israel. Like, did you have a uh, you know a, a more ancestral rooting interest, or were you rooting for Americans? I, I mean, I was rooting for Americans, but I was, as as a Jew, I was also you know I was also you know super psyched about Israel as well. I mean, if it had come to them versus. Um, you know, America, I would have rooted for America. But yeah, like, Israel was definitely a cool thing. I, I am also Italian, and I did not give a crap about Team Italy. But <laughs> Hey, yeah. Piazza was one of the coaches for yeah. Team Italy. Come on. And, and you know, fe- featuring Mets legends like Gavin Giacchini on their roster. So. <laughs> I forgot Giacchini played for Team Italy. <laughs> and Nimmo yeah. did too, but uh, I'm not going to talk about him now. <laughs> if we're bringing this full circle, we can really say that the missing of the WBC is one of the biggest misses of the offseason. I missed that tournament entirely. Yeah, I, I, I think I think one of these years I just have to convince myself, like, all right, I have to treat this the way people treat March Madness and just go all in. What makes it hard from my, my personal perspective is that there's still Mets games happening during that time, right? So it's like I, my my fandom gene wants me to watch the Mets whenever I can. But even though I think that for baseball, it will be better for me to be watching the WBC. So as, as a Mets fan, how do you treat or like, how much do you care if players participate or not? Are you, are you disappointed when someone like Seth Lugo pitches 20 innings for team Puerto Rico and then is out for the season? Or do you want to see your team representing their country? You know, it, it, it's a tough line because on one hand, I definitely do want to see my team represent their country because, again, I, I want baseball to thrive. I want baseball to succeed internationally and domestically, and I think that it's great. I mean, Seth Lugo had a performance for Team Puerto Rico that basically put him on people's radars. You know, he was a sort of middling Mets prospect up to that point, and then he pitched great in the WBC, and that got people's attention. So I think even for your individual fit team – there are benefits to your players playing. I just wish it didn't happen the time of year that it happens. I wish it happened after the World Series. And I know that there are logistical issues with that as well, but it just seems to me like, God forbid, if somebody blows out their knee in the middle of the WBC, you now have time to deal with that as a club, as opposed to if somebody were to blow out their knee, you know, the second week of March that could seriously derail your season for something that didn't involve, you know, your team. And so I'm not saying that that's a perfect solution. I would just personally rather see it then. Also, because there is this big gulf of baseball action, you know, we get a little bit of the Caribbean series on TV. We get a, a tiny taste of the Arizona Fall League. But during this time of year, I mean, if you, if you just want to watch baseball, MLB Network has something like two or three games on a day. You can find baseball to watch now. I'm starving for baseball at different times throughout the year, and that's when I want to see, you know, baseball on TV. So that that would be my my change to it if I were if I were the man in charge, which clearly I am not. Um, all right. Well, I, I I have loved the WBC conversation, but since since Michael is now up here, Michael, what would what would you think is the Mets' biggest miss this offseason? Well, first of all, let me just say that I would definitely support you, Brian, as the new commissioner to replace Rob Manfred. I appreciate that very much. Put that out there right now. (laughs) Um, 
I think that like everyone else, I'm a little bit bummed that they didn't didn't make one last addition to the bullpen. Um, and I, I wasn't here for the earlier part of the conversation, so I apologize if I uh, say something that somebody else already said. But I also, in looking back and looking at the deal that uh, Rio Muto ended up signing for, I do wonder if it would have been smarter to ultimately go with him since the Mets did not end up getting like Springer or thankfully Bauer. Um, you know, as of right now, they haven't really given that big contract yet. Hopefully that will come with Lindor and Conforto. But I think that it sounded like the Mets were expecting him to sign for much more than he ultimately did. And maybe he just would have required a lot more to sign with the Mets. That is possible. It definitely seemed like he wants to be back with the Phillies, all other things being equal. But I'm not I'm not disappointed with McCann. McCann seems fine. But I was also like, you know, really jazzed about the possibility of Rio Moto joining the Mets. So uh that is gonna be kind of a what if scenario in my mind, I think. Yeah, I think that's very fair. I um I wonder how much of the Real Muto stuff on on the Mets fan side is just that we've been hearing that they were going to sign him for two years now. Like pretty much, it's the start of the 2019 offseason. Everyone's like, well, you know, after 2020, Real Muto's a free agent and the Mets are going to go after him big. And then once the sale to Cohen happened, it was like, well, see, it's, it's lining up for Real Muto to be a Met. And so I wonder how much of that was just we talked ourselves into this happening. And so when it didn't happen, it felt like more of a disappointment. Um, but, I, I mean, I'm, I'm with you. For the amount of money that it took to get him, and even the amount of years it took to get him, I don't think it would have been – I think that's a fine deal for the Mets to have made. That said, I think if McCann is the player that we thought uh, – the player that he looked like in 2020 and in 2019, if he's really that guy, I think that the space between – Real Muto and McCann is way less than we think it is. And so yeah, it might wind up, it might wind up being a, a very um it might wind up being a, a sort of a moot point if they both wind up being similar players and the Mets got one cheaper and for less years. So I definitely understand. Yeah, and then that. obviously but, but, but under- if they do end up extending Lindor and Conforto, maybe that's maybe they couldn't have pulled off one of those things if they do sign Real Muto. So like I, I definitely get that. Yeah, yeah, but, but but I think that that's a very fair thing. Um, you also mentioned wishing that they went after another piece for the bull, but I'm sorry, Thomas, were you going to say something? <clears throat> yeah, the only thing I was going to say was, like, I think they misread the catcher market, but also, <clears throat> excuse me, there would have been a legitimate possibility of McCann signing in. I think the Angels were the second team that was in on him, and then Rio Muto goes back to Philly anyway, and then it's an absolute disaster behind the plate. So I think the Mets had to make a choice at some point of saying we could get McCann now and not worry about catcher, or we could chase Real Muto when he might not sign until I don't even remember when he signed, but it was pretty, it was, I know it was in the new year. I don't yeah. I can't remember if it was January or February, but there's an, there's an alternate reality where they miss on both and Tomas Nito's the starting catcher or something. And then it's just oh, at God. that point, exactly like, there's just no there's no catchers in baseball. They're all under contract, or like you're you have to develop. Yeah. yeah, I think at that point, like if you're the Mets and you and McCann sign somewhere else, I think at that point, like Steve Cohen literally has to just come in and say, okay, spend whatever amount is necessary, which obviously would not have been an ideal position to be in. But yeah, that 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 definitely would have been a valid fear for them. Yeah, that, that's a very valid point, Thomas. Thank you for that. Um, I see Ethan is in the room here. I don't know Ethan. I, I know the rest of the folks on this call. Ethan, are, do you want to get up here and talk about the Mets or your team, or whatever your team is, uh, what, what they missed out on this offseason? Um, I'll give him a second to decide this or not before I force it on him. But uh, while, while he is uh, considering that option, I will say that I, I think I sort of echo what Michael said, too, about wanting another bullpen piece. I had said this at the start of the call, but you know, I think that one of the issues for the Mets in this regard was that it's, you know, a lot of the best relief pitchers wanted to close and were able to go to teams where they felt they could close. And so I understand, you know, the, the Brad Hands and Liam Hendricks of the world who wanted to be closers. The Mets weren't going to offer that because of Diaz. But I think there were a number of players out there who the Mets could have gotten, I mean, cheap, real cheap, that would have been big improvements. 
I was really on board with bringing back Ysmero Petit, who was a Met farmhand for many years and uh, has been quite good for the athletics recently. And Petit, I think, came back on a minor league deal, as did players like, uh, you know, I know a lot of Mets fans quiver at the sound of Oliver Perez, but 2021 mustachioed Ali Perez is not the same guy who was driving the Mets nuts. You know, as a as a starting pitcher, I think as a lefty out of the bullpen, Perez could have been very useful. He's with Cleveland, again, on a minor league deal. There are so many decent relievers that signed minor league deals. And look, the Mets brought in some guys who might wind up being a thing. Tommy Hunter, uh, Mike Montgomery, who pitched uh, scoreless inning tonight. You know, there are folks the Mets brought in who maybe could be, could turn into, you know, this year's reclamation project, this year's comeback player of the year. But it seems like for a relatively low investment, they could have basically doubled the amount of bullpen arms they brought in and maybe given a couple of guys that, that weren't such question marks deals because there's a very real chance that this year, that this opening day bullpen has Dylan Batances in it. And if you've been watching any of the spring games, Batances looks like warmed over trash. He just does not, he doesn't have it. It looks like, you know, Jerry's familia is going to make the opening day bullpen and he has looked up, up and down, which is you know the story of familia's career. But familia, I have slightly more confidence in than I do Batances. But you know, I love Jerry Blevins like God loves the poor, but I don't know if Blevins has it in him anymore to be a uh, a reliever, especially with the three batter rule this year. You know, I don't know if um, I'm trying to think who else is, is on my list of of relievers that I'm interested in. I mean, I I would love to see the Mets take a chance on guys like Drew Smith who I think has a lot of upside, but, you know, hasn't had a chance yet to really show it. Um, You know, I just, like Michael said, bringing in another piece or two for the bullpen that felt a little bit more secure than the guys they already have, that probably would have been my my move as well. Um, I know Allison is here. If Allison has a different answer, I'm always interested in her opinion on baseball things. But, oh, and here she is. Hi, Allison. Hey, how you doing? I'm all right. How are you? Good. I mean, Thomas took my answer. I really wanted the Mets to sign Springer, and I'm still pretty <laughs> mad about that. And I'm never going to stop being mad until they extend Conforto. <laughs> then I might stop being mad. But until then, I'm going to stay mad. What if they sign Conforto to a new deal in the offseason? Is that the same as extending him for you? Yeah, more okay. or less. Okay. Um, I think Springer's the big thing they missed out on. And I think that, like one point that needs to be emphasized about that that was touched on, but I don't think really talked about in the earlier discussion about Springer is that like their, their reasoning behind it to me was rather weak about like citing the DH and the uncertainty around that as a reason for not going hard after Springer and topping the Blue Jays offer, because there could just be one year without the DH and then it'll be back again in the next collective bargaining agreement. So I don't understand why they're saying, like, oh, there, there's there's a DH, there's no DH this year, so we can't possibly, like, sign, like, flesh out the money to sign Springer. I think that that's weak <laughs> reasoning. Um, that but. reasoning makes more sense to me for Jackie Bradley Jr. than it does yes. for Springer. I, I think if I think that giving Jackie Bradley Jr., he was asking apparently for four years, giving that dude four years seems like a bad decision under almost any circumstance, but especially when you would be limiting at bats for Brandon Nimmo, Dominic Smith, JD Davis, etc., for Bradley, who was just who's whose bat or defensive skills do not necessarily merit the loss of those guys at bats. I think if there's a DH and you can say, All right, Pete Alonso and Dom Smith are splitting the DH position, then you can go after Bradley Jr. and that makes a lot more sense. Um that said, I've actually been I, I, I've been fighting with myself over this. I'm not the world's biggest Kevin Pillar fan uh, for any uh, under any circumstance, but I wonder if Pillar and Nimmo as a platoon in center field will be the same, worse, or better than Jackie Bradley Jr. would have represented in terms of an overall, like, let's say, war at the end of the year, warp. You know, not not necessarily, 
I, th- I think defensively we can all admit that Bradley would have been better than them in that way. But in terms of like looking at the whole number, does anybody in the room have an opinion about sort of which of those combinations they would rather see? Excuse me, that's spring training MVP Kevin Pillar to you, sir. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. I'm sorry. P- possible future king of spring training, Kevin Pillar. Um, but d- does anybody have a strong feeling about like Pilar and Nimmo versus uh, Bradley? I don't have a strong feeling, but Pilar really hits lefties, and he always has. So, like, at w- when they first signed Pilar, I was kind of – I more didn't understand it for the redundancy with Almora than uh, anything else. Like, it's like they signed Almora, and then they signed the better version of Almora with Pilar, <laughs> like, three weeks later. And I was like, well, why did you sign the first one then? But – I mean, now Jose Martinez tore his meniscus, so they're both probably making the team anyway. But, um, like, Pilar really, if you shelter Pilar correctly, where you only have him face lefties and you get him in the lineup at Nimmo's expense against tough lefties and against Dom and for Dom against tough lefties, and you kind of use him as a defensive replacement because Dom shouldn't be out there in late games because he can't play defense in the outfield. Um, then the signing's going to be fine. It's one of those things that, like, it grew on me the more I thought about it because it was like, if you just if you if he doesn't face a righty all year, he'll have he'll be an above average hitter because that's just what he's done his whole career. And like the defense, it's quote unquote getting worse, but also the defensive metrics we have in as a public as the public are terrible. So like, we don't actually really know that <laughs> like. Right, like, right. like, they, like, I don't really trust UZR to tell me if someone is good at defense or not, and like, th- th- it's just the 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 position that we're in as fans. Like, I don't really trust any of the defensive metrics that are out there because they're old and they no one's ever made new ones really. Like, outs above average is fine, but it's a counting stat. So Almora's looks terrible because he barely played the last two years. Right, but like, it's only bad because. Like, he just hasn't been able to accrue them. It's not that he's been bad because he's been bad defensively. It's right. he played, like, 13 innings or something last year. It's, like, 30, but still. <laughs> yeah, and, like, and not only that, but I, I feel like Pilar had a relatively – I mean, you can go on YouTube and just look up, like, Kevin Pilar highlights, and the dude was legitimately great as an outfielder for quite some time. So he's coming down from a great perspective. He's coming down from a great level, which means that he might land – somewhere in the average zone, as opposed to someone like Brandon Nimmo. When Nimmo starts to decline, he's going to go from yeah. a bad center fielder to an unplayable center fielder. Yeah. And on the, on, on the outfield, on the outfield preview, Jared made a really good point that um, he's going from playing in cores and Fenway. So Luis Rojas actually mentioned this, that um, he, the metrics look really bad because he's played in really bad places to play defense in. And like, all of a sudden, he's had Toronto, which is like an average uh, stadium in terms of hitting and pitching and stuff, to Fenway and Coors, which are like canyons in center field. So, like, he's going to come to City Field, which is a lot n- nicer to you as a fielder than those two places. So, I wonder if he just looks better by proxy by not having to run balls down in the gap at Coors, you know, and at Fenway, which is a huge center field. That is an, that's an excellent point as well. Um, yeah. I think that I think that that the the Nimmo um, Pilar platoon could actually wind up being one of the more offensively productive. Like those two players together represent one of the more offensively productive center fields in the National League. There really are again we said before again there's a couple of truly elite center fielders, but a lot of teams are getting by with with less than than stellar, you know defensive offensive combinations. So I think that those guys could could put together a pretty good offensive season. The question is defensively, is it going to be a train wreck since Nimmo's going to be starting, you know, three out of every four games or whatever it is. But like you said, Thomas, you know, especially if you have Almora there too, late innings, if you have Almora and Pilar, especially if, if, if the Mets have the lead going into the seventh inning and you can put Almora and Pilar out there for Nimmo and Smith, that, that's a major defensive upgrade, and that's something I would I would believe in. Rojas is going to go absolutely nuclear, nuclear with the with the freaking uh, double switches the way he acted <laughs> last year. 
Like, yes. he, he double-switched people, like, every game. So, like, now there's going to be, like, four guys out of the lineup. It's going <laughs> to, like, Guillaume's going to be at third base, and there's going to be two new outfield. The offense is going to be putrid from the seventh inning on in every game because there's going to be four defensive replacements in every win. But the, the one benefit to that, though, is that Jonathan VR is not an offensive black yeah. hole. And he's going to be that guy in a lot of instances. Yeah, he'll come in, too. And I'm sure he's going to play a lot against righties to get his, like, I wouldn't be surprised if him and JD uh, platoon sometimes, too. And Guillaume is going to play yeah. a lot. It's just, they're going to have a lot of guys who aren't regulars who play, like, 80 games. And you're going to look at the fan graphs at the end of the year and be like, oh, wow, that guy played way more than I expected him to. Just because the Mets are able yeah. to move people around and do different things with different people. Uh, Chris McShane and I were talking about um, the uh, the Mets' flexibility on the Amazing Avenue audio of the show this week, and just about how there is like it, it. We were trying to predict the 26 man opening day roster, and trying to predict who was going to be the 26 man was really tough because it was going to be a bench player. And when you look at the Mets, because when you have a VR who can realistically start at four or five positions. And then you have McNeil who could realistically, realistically start at three positions. And J.D. Davis who can realize, you know, just you have all these players who have all these different options. And obviously some of those options are better than others. But the team is so versatile that it was hard to identify, like, all right, what else do they need on the bench? Because kind of everything that they could want was represented somewhere. And I think that's a real benefit of the offseason. And that's maybe a good place to sort of wrap up our conversation tonight is to say that, the, you know, when you look at the Mets offseason, while they didn't get Springer, while they didn't improve the bullpen as much as they wanted to, the depth that they brought in, specifically in starting pitching and also in terms of their bench, I mean, this is probably the Mets' best bench in, I mean, I can't even tell you the last time the Mets had a bench this good. And, you know, last year, Mets starting pitchers, we're, we're amazingly healthy, and so we didn't need to go into the minors too much for these players. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the Mets' like seventh and eighth starter this year is better than the Mets' fifth or sixth starter last year, and that's a huge improvement. Alice, I think you were just going to say something. Yeah, I was going to say that 26th man is probably Jose Martinez if he doesn't injure himself is the, is the issue, and it's sad for him. I, like, I, I, I felt for him when I saw him limping off the field knowing it was awful because I think he would have made the team because with the one place where they need help is not necessarily at any defensive position. It's righty pop off the bench, and that's what he would have provided for them. Um, which is why I think they're now interested in Michael Franco because it's sort of the same guy, uh, just a different position that he plays. At, well, he plays it better than Jose Martinez plays any position, but he's not a defensive wizard. He's a third base only guy. Obviously, he's blocked in the field by several guys that the Mets already have. But it's it, it's that righty pinch hitter guy that was going to be the twenty sixth man, and it was yes. going to be Jose Martinez, and now it's going to be Michael Franco or like nobody. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think it probably ends up being Almora. I know Chris is stumping for Malik Smith because of his speed. <laughs> um, like, if you're going to have a random 26 guy in the roster, it might as well be one of the three or four fastest players in baseball. But my point was that VR is actually, I think, ahead of Smith in terms of like career stolen bases. There's only three player, two players ahead of Malik Smith for career active career stolen bases, and VR is one of them. So I think that VR I mean, I think that VR signing might be the equivalent of, like, the Kelly Johnson trade in 2015 of just, like, you're bringing in a guy that that fills a bunch of holes that you didn't even really think about until he's there. And I think VR is going to be a, a very valuable defensive replacement, pinch runner, uh, stolen base threat. You know, he, I think, I think he's, he's going to do a lot for this team. I think it's really exciting that he's, that he's there. And VR wasn't even, like... I was looking up his numbers before, like right after they signed him, I mean. And he was good up until he got traded last year. So it's not like he was really bad all of last year because he was like a four-win player the year before for Baltimore. And then Baltimore flipped him. And he was solid in Miami, not the same player, not a four-win player good, but he was an above-average offensive player. And then he got traded and was horrible. And the Mets kind of bought low on those few weeks were fake. And... That's not a bad strategy, and, and the Mets really a lot of the guys that they bought this year who aren't like the big name guys are even, even Lindor was too. 
like the Mets and Sandy were kind of like, hey, 2020 was stupid and 60 games long. So let's let's bet on all these guys playing an at, to their actual ability in a full 162 rather than judging them on a 60 game sample size. And VR is one of those guys that I would like he's a dark horse for me to take JD Davis's job at some point if Davis continues to struggle defensively and the Mets are just fed up with him because Sandy does not sound married to him at all and the the moves that they make I'm surprised they didn't like the the way he was like, you know, he's my third baseman for now and he's the starter for now and all this stuff. Like I'm surprised they didn't go harder after third base, but I wouldn't be surprised if something like I I think that's very correct, yeah. I'll be right back. I just need to go get Linda to come in here and yell at Thomas. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I don't think he's wrong though, do you? He's not. No, I had the same thought. <laughs> uh I actually think that there's a really interesting like um there's a narrative that is going to come out if the Mets are really good this year, is just like the buy low Mets between Lucchese and Taiwan Walker and um, VR and Pilar and, uh, you know, even Carrasco. Like the fact that they got Carrasco essentially as a, as a throw-in for the Lindor trade, that's insane. And I think that the Mets might wind up having this team that if all goes right for the Mets, I think they're going to be a beast of a team. But, you know, it's the Mets, so something catastrophic will happen. A boulder will fall from the sky on the city field, you know, crushing Dom Smith or something because that's what happens to the Mets, to the Mets when the Mets get optimistic. But I think this team has a potential to be really deep and really good. It just scares me to feel that way because, again, I'm a Mets fan. And it's also, it's also frustrating to feel that way because you know, all right, but if they had Springer and if they had, like, two more guys in the bullpen – I feel so much more confident in this right now. But anyway, that will do it for tonight's chat. Uh, thank everybody, y'all, for stopping in tonight. I really appreciate it. Go to Amazing Avenue for all sorts of fun baseball stuff. Uh, follow Amazing Avenue on social media at Amazing Avenue. Follow me on Twitter at Brian It's an app. And um, thanks, guys. Let's go, Mets. We'll talk next week. Have a good night, everybody. Thanks. Thanks.